scripture reading will be from Job chapter 42 and verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Evening. I invite you to be taking out your Bibles and turning to the book of Job. We're going to be looking at the entirety of the book this evening, Lord willing. This morning we looked at Job as a person and some of the character qualities that he had that I believe that set him apart as a righteous man, that one that we should emulate, one that we should look to as a positive example of righteousness and faithfulness. To God, especially in a time of trouble. But this evening, we want to zoom out and we want to take a more uh, overview kind of look, a flyover of what the entire book of Job is about. Because it's a complicated book, if we're honest with ourselves. As we looked at, we know that Job is a righteous man. He is described as much throughout the book. He affirms his own righteousness. And yet, as you get into the weeds of the book, it can become a very complicated kind of read because, to be honest, we look at some of the speeches that Job's friends make. And while they are not commended by God at the end of the book, In fact, they are told how wrong they are and how right Job is. We kind of find ourselves saying, yeah, I think his friends might be right or they're on to something here. Or maybe we read Job and his speeches throughout the book and we find ourselves saying, Job, you're kind of uh, saying some things that just ought not to be said. You're being a little irreverent. You're being a little impatient towards God. No one ought to speak to God that way. And so we're kind of left with this, uh, with this view of the book of Job that's very complicated, that we don't really understand how Job could be described as righteous, how he's this positive example, and those kinds of things. And the book of Job is classified in the genre, as we mentioned, of Hebrew wisdom literature. And what he, Hebrew wisdom literature will always do, it will always uh, challenge our ideas and our notions. It will always challenge the idea of human wisdom. And it will try to correct that course that we need to try to see things through the divine, through the lenses of God. That's sort of what I think the purpose or the function of wisdom literature serves in the Bible. And it's going to explore complicated ideas, things that where we might find ourselves reasoning just like Job's friends. We might say, you know, they're onto something. And that's exactly what it's supposed to do. We're supposed to be like that. But we're also supposed to follow the stream, if you will. And we are also supposed to accept the correction that comes along the way when those people are corrected. And so what the book of Job is doing is trying to set God's wisdom and God, God's perspective on life. No matter how, how things might be, no matter how large or how small 
no matter how uh, how we view things, our view is very limited. We have but a very small, narrow view and glimpse into life. And so we need to zoom out and we need to see things from God's perspective. And Job, I believe, is really the test case for a lot of things that to explore these ideas. Job is getting to be the one that experiences all of these things for our benefit so that we can learn, that we can learn to see things from God's vantage point a little bit clearer. And so we're going to explore the book of Job tonight, and so we want to come to a better understanding of what God through His Holy Spirit is communicating to us. And if we're just to try to outline the book of Job, we're going to try to go through a lot of these, especially these first couple of points pretty quickly, because I think if there's something that we know about the book of Job, it's really these first two points. And that is at the beginning, as we alluded to this morning, there's this conversation that God and Satan have with one another. In Job chapter 1 and in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. As we noted this morning in this kind of conversation that takes place between God and Satan, I think sometimes we miss this point, but that's really where the main uh, antagony is here in this antagonist kind of situation that Satan is playing. That He is this accuser. He is the one who is threatening. He's the one who is accusing God. And he's saying, God, you are Job only serves you because of all the good that you do for him. And then notice, if you would, in verse 11, what Satan is really trying to do, he doesn't want to touch Job. It's interesting. He doesn't actually want to do any harm to Job, at least initially. Who does he want to turn against Job? He's trying to get God to turn against Job. You see that in verse 11? This is Satan saying to God, you put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. I think that really changes some of the, the way that we would perceive the book of Job is that we understand that this is not just a conflict between Satan and Job. This is a conflict between Satan and God. And Satan is trying to get God to do some harm, do something bad to Job. And God says, I'm not going to fall for this trick. But you can test Job. And you can see exactly what I see. That he is a man who is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. 
And that may come as a surprise to us that God would allow that. But what I think that proves is that God knows His servants better than Satan does. God knows your faithfulness more than what Satan would ever know about you. And I think sometimes we think this world belongs to Satan and Satan is all-knowing, and that's just not so. God knows more about you and your faithfulness and your righteousness and your belief and your faith way more than what Satan might know. And God is extremely confident that if Satan takes everything away from Job, then Job would still remain faithful. Satan is the cynic. God is the one who has faith and belief in His own servants. He trusts His servants. As you come into chapter 2, in chapter 2 there's another discussion between God and Satan. That It's a very similar sort of occurrence. But what we find here is that as God is allowing Job to be tested by Satan, He says in verse 6, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. While in chapter 1, he says, you can't touch Job. You can't do any harm to him. In chapter 2, he says, okay, you can, you've taken everything away from him. You've taken his riches. You've taken his children. You've taken his wealth. You've taken all of this away from Job. Now, you still think he's going to curse me? He says, okay, you can take his health. But you cannot kill him. And what we see is that Satan's primary enemy is God. He wants God to turn to evil, not just Job. Satan wants God to cause trouble and suffering, but God does not do that. He allows Satan to cause suffering and wreak havoc on the earth and for Job, but God himself is not going to be the one who would decree such. And so we see that God and Satan, they are enemies. They are set forth as enemies. Satan believes that Job is only serving God because of all the good blessings that Job has received from God's hand. And God is extremely confident in His servant Job that Job is going to continue to remain faithful even if all of those things were removed. And then we see that Job just has a very, very, very bad day. I'm convinced this bad day must have been a Monday. I think every Monday is terrible, right? That it's had to have been a Monday. Where in Job chapter 1 and in verse 13, beginning there, it says, Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. 
And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It might have been a day like today without as windy as it's been. But what happens here is that Job just receives bad news after bad news after bad news, and it's amazing, isn't it, that it's while the other is still speaking, and then the other servant comes up, and he has just more bad news to tell Job. What a miserable day that must have been. And you might think after hearing of losing it all, how would you react? You would probably start weeping and crying and feeling sorry for yourself in many ways. But what, it, what I marvel at with Job is in verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. As you continue on in chapter 2, and in verse 7, then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a posture to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And even after his health has gone, after he has been inflicted with these boils, and after his wife has just said, curse God and die. He says in verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. His resolve is never in doubt, is it? His life, his purpose, his what he wants to do. It's about serving God. That is never questioned. And then, we learn in verse 11 of chapter 2, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place and were introduced to these three, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. And it says at the end of verse 11, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. His friends didn't even recognize him. They didn't even see that this was their friend. And that, I would suggest to you here, as they sit with Job, while they are silent, everything is okay, then they open their mouth and they find out how sorry comforters they are. And Job finds out as well. 
But there's still something to appreciate about this, that Job's friends came. You know, sometimes I think whenever there's something bad that happens to someone, we never know what to say, we never know what to do. Sometimes all you need to do is be there. Even if you don't have anything to say. Just your presence can be of comfort. And I'm reminded that what the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, that we need to be those the kinds of people who would rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we can say a lot of negative things about Job's friends, but at least they understood that principle. They understood the importance of being there. But as we mentioned, they begin to speak. They're not silent, and so they kind of actually end up becoming some miserable friends, or at least miserable comforters. And from chapter all the way through chapter 37. We have the majority of this book contains their speeches and Job's replies to them. And what we find is that these friends are going to try to explain why Job is going through what he is going through. And their speeches take the form of three cycles that you and it's always in the same pattern where you have Eliphaz and then you have Job's response, you have Bildad, then you have Job's response, you have Zophar, and then you have Job's response. And that's the first cycle of Job's uh, and all these speeches throughout the book of Job in chat the cycle the second cycle it's the same, follows the same pattern. Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, and then Job responds. And then Zophar speaks, and then Job again responds. And you have that occurring a third time. What's unique about the third cycle of these speeches is that Zophar, he doesn't have a speech, actually. So you have Eliphaz and Job's response. You have Bildad's speech and you have Job's response. And we just don't have the time to go through all of the speeches tonight and to look at those things that are said. But I think we generally probably understand quite a bit of what they were trying to articulate to Job. And that is that they have the explanation. They had the key to understanding why Job is going through all of this. And they are trying to set things straight. And that is seen, I think, particularly clearly in chapter 32-37 through 37 where we are introduced to Elihu. Another guy who's kind of been there all along. He's heard the speeches that Job has made. He's heard the speeches from the three friends. And he's like, none of you guys have this right. He's kind of this young, arrogant, boastful guy who says, I have all the right answers here. You guys need to listen to me. And he's not very helpful either. But what their arguments essentially all come down to is what could be described as retribution theology. That's a, a term that 
we would use. It's never found in the book of Job. But I think it describes very adequately what they are trying to articulate, what they're trying to say. If you would turn to Job chapter 8, this is in the speech that Bildad makes to, to Job. In chapter 8 and in verses 3 through 6, notice here with me, if you would read along. It says, Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against Him, then He delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now He would rouse Himself for you and restore your righteous estate. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Job, you or your sons, y'all have done something terribly wicked. And if you would just repent and seek God's forgiveness, He would restore your righteousness to you. In chapter 15, in chapter 15 and in verse 4, Eliphaz, he makes this speech to Job and he says in verse 4 of chapter 15, Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder meditation before God. For your guilt teaches your mouth and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. And your own lips testify against you. Saying, Job, you are guilty. Your own lips are telling that when we hear you argue and your rebuttals, we, we only know that you're guilty of something. And why I would call this retribution theology, retribution theology is this belief that God is going to punish the wicked and He's going to bless the righteous. Just as simple as that, period. Full stop. That He's going to bless the righteous and He's going to punish the wicked. And so they're saying if they have adopted this philosophy, this belief, that God only will punish the, the wicked. So Job is wicked, or Job is being punished rather, so he must be wicked. That's kind of the, the line of thought here. And so that's why Job always comes back with an affirmation of his innocence. In chapter 23, in chapter 23, in verses 11 and 12, he says, My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And what I find amazing is that Job is willing, he says throughout the book that he's willing to repent. And if he had done something wrong, he would be willing to repent of it. But he says, I'm righteous. I haven't turned from God's laws. I haven't turned away from what He has told me to do. And what Job can do throughout these, his own speeches and in his replies to his friends, he makes some speeches that make us, from our vantage point, feel pretty uncomfortable because he speaks very candidly towards God. 
And I, I think you have to recognize that Job himself does not live life in a vacuum, that his friends are subscribing to this retribution theology, that the wicked are punished and the righteous are blessed. And you notice in Job chapter 1, Job himself in verse 21, whenever he, after he had received all the, the terrible news about the loss of his wealth and the loss of his livestock and the loss the loss of his children. He says in Job 1 and verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. I think you have to recognize that Job himself even seems to be at least battling this. This idea of retribution theology in his own head. He's thinking God might have been the one who has taken away. In chapter 2 and verse 10, when he rebukes his wife for the curse God and die statement, he says that we should indeed accept good from God, but shouldn't we also accept adversity? You see, Job is probably even thinking along some of the same lines as his friends. That he's sort of evaluating, I think that's what the book of Job is really trying to help us see, is that there's this evaluation of retribution theology. Is it always just very simplistic that the righteous are going to be blessed and the wicked are going to be punished. Is that how you can just account for everything that happens in life? And Job is the test case. He, he's the, the wrench get, that gets thrown into this thing that makes this thing stop for a minute and make us think. Because what cannot make sense with retribution theology is if you adopt that mindset, what you cannot explain is how the righteous might suffer. How would the righteous suffer? And you come to chapter 9 in the book of Job. And Job says some things that I know make some people feel pretty uncomfortable here. Because it appears that he would be accusing God of injustice, of being unfair. And he demands this day in court, if you would, where he's saying, I'm on trial here. I want some answers. I need an answer. And I think what this is, he's not actually accusing God of being unjust or anything of that. I think what he is trying to do, he's, he's working out the cognitive dissonance. You know, whenever you have accepted something to be true, generally speaking, and then you see the exception and you have to figure out which one fits, <laughs> or you're going to have to change your mind about something. Because if it's true that God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous, and then it's also true that Job is righteous, but he is suffering, then that would make God unjust in some way. And so he's having to work this all out in his mind. And I think that's what's where we see Job asks some questions. He makes some statements that seem to be irreverent, that seem to be something that we would never think of saying. 
For instance, in Job chapter 9, in Job chapter 9 and in verse 14, he says, How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I have I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He would not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. He's making some very harsh kind of statements, but I think what he's doing is all this is beginning to unravel for him. And so Job's statements like that and Job's questions and his desire to question God and to ask God some things about his situation, it doesn't come from unbelief. Because what we can find in the Psalms is that faith can question, really sort of push back. And it can really consider the deep and challenging hard things in life. That's not something at all uncommon in in wisdom literature. For instance, if you want to hold your place there in the book of Job and turn over to Psalm 73. The book of Psalms in the 73rd Psalm. This is a Psalm of Asaph. And he is contemplating many of the things that Job is contemplating. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued with mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. He goes on describing how the wicked, how they prosper and how they succeed. And they seem to have no affliction. And Asaph is wondering, how does all this happen? How is all of this right? And he concludes at the end in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." In chapter 77, or Psalm 77, and in verse 1, my voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out with weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You see that Asaph is struggling here, isn't he? He he readily admits that I almost slipped, faltered. What we see is that this is trying to help us work through some of the struggles that we're going to face in life. 
even believers, even the righteous, they will suffer. They will have these same sorts of questions. And having questions, having you know this sense of wonderment and doubt of is God really blessing me or is God really the cause behind all of this or why am I going through all of this? Doesn't have to those questions and those doubts. They don't have to be rooted in unbelief. I'm convinced that God is big enough, strong enough, powerful enough to accept those questions. And as we read the book of Job, what we find out is that these conversations with Job and his friends, what they never do is they never question God's power. What is on trial is God's justice and His love. And that's something that we get at the end of the book. And the reason that this is wisdom literature is that Job is questioning and he's pushing back against the reasoning and the wisdom of his friends. So the question that they are all wrestling with, or at least Job is in particular, did God bring all of this against me? And Job is wanting that day in court, he's wanting to speak before God. And his words are very raw. They seem irreverent at times. And what Job is finding very difficult in all the midst of suffering is seeing God's grace. He's struggling to see God's love. And don't we all have that same kind of trouble? Whenever we're stabbed in the back by a friend, when we feel betrayed, when we feel that someone did not speak up and defend us, We've always kind of wondered, well, I guess it's just out to get me. And that's what the majority of the book of Job is dealing with. And then the closing chapters of the book, you have God speaking to Job. And it seems that as Job has realized that his friends are miserable comforters, and that in contrast to his friends, Job is speaking words of wisdom. In chapter 28, in chapter 28 and in verse 28, this is Job speaking. He says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. He's not someone who is an unbeliever. He's someone who is wanting to seek understanding. He's wanting to seek wisdom. He's wanting an explanation. And his friends have proven to be altogether unhelpful. And we see in the book of Job in chapter 38, in chapter 38, that God begins to speak out of the whirlwind, out of chaos. God says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? As Job has been somewhat boastful and arrogant perhaps in some of the words that he has said, now he's being humbled by God. In verse 12, he says, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Or verse 31, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their role over the earth? Verse 39, God asks, Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? God is the one who commands the earth, the stars, and the planets. And what's funny is as you come to chapter 40, it it says, then the Lord said to Job, verse 1 and, and then verse 2, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice and I will add nothing more. And that's all that he has to say. <laughs> he has been saying so much and now that he's really having to come to terms with what God is saying to him, he has nothing to say. I think that's interesting. God's not angry that Job has had all these questions, or he's not even angry that or upset with him for what he has said per se, he, it's more the attitude behind it in some ways. While he has not sinned, while he's not cursed God, while he never blamed God, what he did not realize was that there is a different perspective that Job needed to adopt. That even in the midst of suffering, God's purposes are not thwarted. In chapter 42, Job finally came to that conclusion, didn't he? In verse 2, when Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. After all the complaining and after all the debating with his friends, and while Job was right in many respects, there is still lacking in what he understood. And what these closing chapters are helping us see is that God can still accomplish His will even in the midst of suffering. And we see the behemoth and the Leviathan. We mentioned those this morning, just briefly. In chapter 40, in chapter 41, these great 
creatures that God has created. And God still provides for them. He provides the food and the things that they need. And they don't recognize it. They don't understand God's presence there. But Job is capable of seeing, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of suffering, that God cares. He's able to kind of come to this conclusion by the end of it all. And Job recognizes that he spoke in ignorance. They should have never questioned or doubted God's faithfulness or loving kindness. And so the end of the book of Job, it ends with everything being restored to Job. In verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. In chapter 42 and verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. And they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters were given their names. And it says at the end in verse 15, in all the land, no women were, were found so fair as Job's daughters and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. What the book of Job so much, I think, is used to try to answer questions about suffering. Why do we go through things that we go through? And rightfully, that we go, we see Job's suffering. We see all that he went through. And Job had to learn and he had the privilege of being able to speak with God and to hear God explain some things. And Job had to come to the conclusion and realize that life is so much more complex than anything that we can see just from our limited vantage point. But what, where we can find comfort is that God is in control and that His purposes will never be thwarted and that God's love for us is constant even if we suffer, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that God is angry with us and that God is punishing us. Retribution theology is not an acceptable answer. Even our suffering can have a purpose that we cannot see nor even really understand, especially as we are going through it. So what is the book of Job really about? Is it really this book that would answer all our questions about suffering and, and tribulations and struggles? Or is it about something else? 
came across this quote and I thought it was good because I think it's helpful in helping us evaluate what the book of Job is really trying to accomplish. He says the book of Job is going to make the case that God's justice is not the foundation of how the world operates. We cannot explain all circumstances by investigating them as the result of righteous or wicked behavior. The book of Job turns our attention away from the idea that the world runs by God's justice and offers the alternative that instead of trying to understand everything that happens as a reflection of God's justice, we should learn to trust His wisdom. That God's wisdom is really the key idea that the book of Job is trying to explore and help us understand that wisdom is the key thing. That what makes this world operate the way it does, that God is the one who's in control. That His purposes cannot be thwarted and that God, He is the one who can see the beginning all the way to the end. And that suffering even can play a role in helping accomplish God's purposes. The same author continues, God's wisdom is the key to the book's message. As readers are impressed with the wisdom of God, they are encouraged to trust Him rather than try to figure out why He is doing what He does. Rather than seeking explanations that will verify His justice, the response to God should be to trust the way He has chosen to have the world operate, trust Him regarding the circumstances that come into our lives, and trust that His ways are the best ways. That trust may well be based on the firm belief that He loves us, but the book itself does not build the case on that foundation. What I think is so important is that we need to learn from the book of Job is that Job is not really the main character of the book of Job. The main character is God. We're ultimately driven to understand God better as a result of reading and understanding this book. That God is powerful, He's loving, He's kind, and He's gracious, and even His wisdom can be found in suffering. We learn of God's justice and His power, His wisdom through reading the book of Job. And we see security, protection, and care through God's bigness. He is larger than anything you or I might experience and He can absorb some of the things that we may question. And that's some of the things that Job's friends really did not learn. And when, we, when someone is suffering, we've all probably known someone who has endured great hardship and great trial in their life. Maybe they're extremely sad. And we just don't know how, we don't know what to say in those times. 
what we can do is we can pray that God brings comfort. We can affirm that God loves them. And we can be with them. Pray for them. Pray that God's, they might begin to see life through God's wisdom. Think about some of the struggles that life brings. Maybe it's losing a spouse. The sadness that comes along with that. Maybe it's a family going through a very messy and rocky divorce. And it's hard to see anything that good might come out of it. Maybe there's a sense of betrayal. Maybe it's whenever a mother has a miscarriage. There's grief. There's sorrow. There's pain. And you wonder, why? How could God do this? How is this right? And you're going through those things. It's hard to see God, isn't it? But God's purposes will not be thwarted or challenged. And if we have, if we're the friend of someone who is going through those kinds of things, we need to be very careful in what we say. That's where we need to learn from the bad example of Job's friends. I've heard people say some really, really bad things. Their intentions may have been good in the right place, but maybe after that mother had a miscarriage, they said, well, you can just have another child. That's not the thing to say. Or whenever that person's going through that really messy divorce and just say, well, you can marry again. You can marry someone else. Or after an adoption may fail, well, there's other kids that you can adopt. Insensitive kinds of things that people can say may be well-meaning and well-intended can be the kinds of things that would cause harm and be very destructive. In the dark and the difficult moments, we need to avoid making the mistakes that Job's friends made. We need to look for God's wisdom and God's understanding. And whenever someone that we know is suffering and going through hardship and trial, we need to just be there. Be a shoulder that they can cry on. Offer a warm embrace. I think one of the things that gave Job some confidence throughout suffering was that he understood 
there was hope. In Job 19 and verse 25, it says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job didn't have the full picture and the full explanation of everything. He didn't lose sight of the hope and the confidence that he could have through God. He trusted in that the entire way. And we might be tempted to ask as we study the book of Job, why did Job suffer? And what's interesting is that Job never gets an answer to that question. But what I think the real question we ought to ask ourselves is why is Job righteous? Why did he not just give up and blame God? That's the real question we need to ask. Will you be righteous like Job? Even when you don't understand God's policies and all the things that are going on in your life, will you allow yourself to just be amazed at God's love and the power that He has? And you devote your life and your confidence to live in such a way to please God? Will you sustain your righteousness even when you don't have understanding of all the hardships and all the difficulties that you may endure and that you may go through? That's why we need to study the book of Job. The book of Job will help sustain us in our faithful commitment to righteousness even in the face of adversity, pain, suffering, trials, and anguish. And Job kept confidence that his Redeemer lived. And the good news is that your Redeemer lives. Jesus Christ came, and He died, and He was raised on the third day to give us hope of eternal life in heaven so that we could dwell with God for all of eternity. This evening, if you're not a child of God, we will beg and implore that you would make your life right with God. Trusting that what God has done in sending His Son and making the provision through His sacrifice that your sins could be forgiven. You could become a child of God. And if you've responded to the Gospel and yet you've not been living faithfully, you've not been sustained in your faithfulness, you've allowed the trials and the discouragement and the difficulties in life to weigh you down. And you've given up on God you have an opportunity tonight to make that right. Would you repent and come back? If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and receive?